0: Welcome to season three of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. More history, more people, more of the stuff that got you here in the first place. Thanks for listening. One, two, three, jump. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome once again to another episode of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Your favorite time-hopping history podcast with your host, Kyle. That is me. That is the voice that you're listening to currently. How is everyone? How's it going? How's your life? How's your wife? How is all of it happening? Today's episode, episode number 47, as we inch closer and closer to the 50th episode of the show. Today's episode, we are going to continue our journey through the land of civics. I know some of you aren't really a fan of civic conversation, especially uh, the American version of civics, but I personally find it extremely interesting. It's it's a very fun time, at least in my head, to talk about the opposition uh, 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 of different people's ideas. It's American politics in civics in general has always been a, a a battleground so to speak and it's always interesting to go around and, and look at the different issues that affect different people Now you always hear this whole thing these days about oh God if we have I America never had such a tribal mentality between political parties America's always has has always had this sort of uh, a very civil... A discourse where, you know, at least everybody had had this bottom baseline morality that they never, ever questioned. And even though they had differential opinions on some of their ideology, in in the end of the day, they all got along perfectly. That is a load of cooked up bullshit for sure. America has been as tribal of a mentality between people as anyone in the world for the entirety of of its existence as a nation. As we saw last week when we talked about the Missouri Compromise, obviously the biggest issue there was the issue of slavery and some people who were for it and some people who were very much against it. And obviously there were people in the middle who didn't really give a shit about it. But in the end, the people making the decisions were all a bunch of white dudes. So, of course, since they weren't the slaves themselves, There was always going to be a small amount of apathy attached to the idea of it. But anyhow, that is getting uh, down the track a little too far before the episode starts. Today's episode, we are going to talk about popular sovereignty and in particular how it affects Kansas. Yes, the state of Kansas. I am a Nebraskan myself, so it is very easy for me to want to make fun of Kansas, our neighbor to the south. But really, it is a very similar state to the one that I am from. And it has a very interesting historical um, uh, niche in these here United States, uh, particularly in the story of Bleeding Kansas. We are going to talk about popular sovereignty. We are going to talk about the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And we are going to talk about Bleeding Kansas on this, the 47th episode of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. (laughs) Guys, stick with me. Before we get into the casting characters of Bleeding Kansas, it sounds like kind of a really sad uh, musical, doesn't it? Bleeding Kansas. It, it, it's, I don't mean to make fun. It is actually a very serious time in the history of the United States, but there are people that go along with it that helped to uh, instigate and, I guess you could say, finish the fight when it came to Bleeding Kansas. But before, just like we like to talk about on a, a seemingly weekly basis these days... Uh, We need to speak about context because context is literally everything when it comes to these things. Nobody just decided to wake up one day and just fight each other for no good fucking reason. There were things leading up to the incident or the set of incidents known as Bleeding Kansas. The two things we need to set ground for are popular sovereignty and the Kansas Nebraska Act. Now, we already did lay a great foundation of context last week. And if you haven't uh, heard that episode, go back and download the Missouri Compromise episode and watch me talk about civics for 45 straight minutes. It's a real interesting uh, look into the Missouri Compromise. But long story short for that one, the Missouri Compromise basically said hey, here's the 3630 parallel line. No states above this can be slave states, and any state below it can be a slave state. So below this line is slave state, and above this line you shall not pass. And the only exception is the state of Missouri, which basically completely and utterly is above that line. So Missouri gets to become a state in the Union as a slave state while Maine joins the Union as a free state, keeping the tenuous uh, uh, balance of power in the Congress between those states that supported the owning of people and those states that did not. So, the big thing about the Missouri Compromise is it takes away the power of the citizenry to make the decision on whether their state would have slavery or no, instead it puts that power into an already predetermined sort of geographical feature that said, well, here's a line, if you're below this, you can have slavery, and if you're above it, you don't get to have slavery. The biggest uh, uh, misdeed, I guess you could say, with this particular thing is that those people who owned slaves didn't think of their slaves really so much as people as they thought of them as property, and they were mad that if they were transporting their slaves around to a different territory in the United States, say they wanted to make it big elsewhere besides those already established uh, regions in the Deep South, that they couldn't uh, take their, I guess, duly-bought property with them to what would be considered a free state area. They were mad because this is what white people get mad about. I got my property and I want to take it to my new house and this goddamn law is not allowing me to take my property where I want it to go so you start to have the rumblings of this new idea that and it's not really a new I- not really a new idea obviously it's really kind of an old idea but this new idea in its particular context of saying hey Instead of the federal government telling us where and, and when we can have slavery, how about we just have the people in the states or territories, how about we have them vote on it? How about we have these people say, hey, we're all going to have slavery or, hey, we're all not going to have slavery? Sounds pretty good on paper, right? Sounds like a reasonable thing. Now, first of all, I have to, you know, obviously lay the, lay the track down firstly that says, I I obviously don't endorse slavery, and I don't mean to speak of it if you're taking it that way in such light tones. Of course, slavery is abhorrent, and it is awful, and it is one of the darkest times and and things that you can talk about in the history of the United States. The fact that the United States is one of the final holdouts of slavery In the civilized world is one of the worst things that those of us who are American citizens will always have to deal with as part of our our respective and collective pasts. So but anyhow in this time in the context as we always say is King in the context of this time those who did own slaves did not see those people and yes they are people just as much as you or I they did not see those people as anything more than their own pieces of property. And they, when they wanted to move to somewhere, wanted to take them with them. So they figured, hey, how about instead of some other entity deciding what we can or can't do, how about us, the people? You know, right? We, the people, the United States, we're going to decide what we want to do. And like I said, it sounds really great on paper. I mean, isn't that the entire, isn't that the entire point? Of the United States, isn't that the point that we, the people, decide what we want to do with you know the the direction of our country? It sounds really great. That's kind of where it ends, though. Is where it sounds. It's it's this idea that obviously uh, you know the consent of the governed is the power in which we derive you know what we what we want to do. The big thing about it is, though, is that the people, you know, in We the People, tended to be, like we just said, a bunch of white men. That's it. No women, no uh, minorities or people of color, no Native uh, Americans, no, obviously no black people either. It just tended to be a bunch of white dudes making the call. So on that part, it's already a flawed meaning because We the People was really a very small subgroup of the actual people that all lived in the United States at the time. At the same time, you can already see where this sort of thing is going to go wrong because if you have these new territories and and a bunch of open land in the United States that doesn't have a bunch of people in it, and we think, hey, now we're going to try to use popular sovereignty or the vote of the people to decide, to decide whether something is a slave state or not instead of the Missouri Compromise. What do you think happened very quickly thereafter? If your answer is, A, the people who are already living there assembled peacefully and had a little vote and figured it out, you'll be extremely wrong. The actual answer is B, a whole bunch of people from either camp. Yes, that tribal mentality, those who loved slavery and those who didn't rushed to become citizens in the, you know, established residents in these states long enough to vote. And sway the election in a certain direction. Of course, it wasn't just the people who were living there that were going to make this decision. It was a bunch of other randos that were gonna pop into the area with their own, you know, ideas of how something should be, and go ahead and start making up their mind. This is the this is the idea of popular sovereignty, and this is how it worked in the United States, and it is all because of a little thing called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Now, as we mentioned a little earlier during the uh, the caning of Charles Sumner episode way early on, and we actually will uh, mention those uh, gentlemen involved in that little brawl a little bit later on, uh, Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois, the man who would eventually become the Democratic uh, uh, ticket holder In the election of the United States, uh, who would eventually, you know, go against the Abraham Lincoln, was one of the people, one of the primary people who drafted the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 with the approval of then President Franklin Pierce. The initial purpose of this act was to open up the thousands of new farms and make feasible a Midwestern transcontinental railroad but inside of the Kansas Nebraska Act there was the popular sovereignty clause which meant to basically completely and utterly repeal the uh the Missouri Compromise which was already established back in 1820 that said hey this is the line you shall not cross in the Kansas Nebraska Act they basically said okay uh, that's all over now we want you know whoever wherever they go to be able to decide whether they want to be a slave state and really On its nose, you know, Douglas and others just kind of wanted to have this territory open up and have it become part of the United States so they could eventually make this transcontinental railroad thing a a true thing, you know, because the United States was growing much faster than people thought it would. And having a railroad go all the way across the country from coast to coast would be a huge boon to uh, the economy throughout the entirety of the nation. So the Kansas-Nebraska Act sought to help organize these territories in the middle of the country, the Kansas and Nebraska territories, into these places that would eventually, you know, make true the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, Unfortunately, like uh, many things in Congress, there is a lot of extra wording and pork involved in these things and part of the extra wording involved was the the addition of the popular sovereignty clause. And the big reason why this particular clause worked its way into the Kansas Nebraska Act is because because excuse me, of a man named David Atchison. David Atchison was a senator from the state of Missouri, so you know, already representing that situation who decided that he, in his own words, he said he would rather, quote, see Nebraska sink in hell before he would allow it to be overrun by free soilers, unquote. Free soilers is the term for people who were, um, there were this little like dinky third political party sort of thing that was very short-lived during this, you know, time uh, in the late 1840s, early 1850s that were very anti-slavery, very pro, you know, every new territory should be free, and, you know, the people who work the land in that should be free to work the land and make the money off that land, there should be no slavery. Well, Atchison is a senator from Missouri. Missouri is a slave state at this point, and he is very upset about the prospect of more of these states coming into the Union As free states. As we talked about in the Missouri Compromise, the biggest thing that the slave states had going for them was the fact that they had enough political power, and in fact, a uh, disproportionate amount of political power based on the three fifths rule in both Congress and especially the Senate. There at this point had already been, or also had been, um, um, the same amount of northern free states as southern states. Slave states, you know, every time there would be a new state admitted to the Union, boom, another state would be admitted to the Union. That would be the opposite of what the new one just was. So there was always that tenuous balance of the situation. And with the Missouri Compromise, like we just talked about, that compromise probably pushed away the Civil War, which probably could have happened in the 1820s or 30s, but pushed it back to the 1860s. Because at the very least, it was this compromise that kind of made everybody happy, at least for A little while now that things and like we talked about last week, everybody just pushes everything to the background says, fuck it, somebody else will deal with this. That was the entire situation with the Missouri Compromise saying, "Okay, here's the compromise. Slave states below this line. Free states below this line. Missouri gets to be a slave state. Maine gets to be a free state. Hooray. We're all happy. Look at us. We're all adults and we figured it out. All of us old white men. We figured it out. Here we go. Nothing bad will ever happen. And if it does, who gives a shit? I'll be old or dead and the people 20, 30, 40 years from now, they can deal with this bullshit. Ha, and everybody uh, applauded and it was great. And that's exactly what happened. They pushed back what would have what was at this point considered in inevitability from everybody in this country that eventually something was going to happen. Something drastic was going to happen based on the idea of slavery, something was going to happen and boil over, whether it was going to be a complete abolition of slavery, which the Southern states weren't going to, you know, take laying down because it they felt like it encroached upon their, their lifestyle. And, you know, or there was going to be some sort of giant war, some sort of conflict, who knows? Everybody knew something was going to happen. And now you get to see as popular sovereignty and the Kansas-Nebraska Act start, you start to see it bubble up a little bit. Like when you're boiling water, you you, you pour water into a pan, you crank the heat up, and you look at the water, and nothing's really happening. But you'd be wrong to think that nothing's happening because, of course, chemically things are happening. The heat is being added to the element of water. The molecules of water are starting to move faster and faster and faster and faster, bump into each other, bump into each other, until the turbulence of that bumping into each other continues to produce more and more and more heat, and eventually it becomes to a boil, you know, producing steam, which is, you know, the gaseous form of water escaping from, you know, the liquid form of water. Now that you've had your chemistry lesson for the day, you can apply it as a metaphor or a simile. Sometimes I don't really uh, get the difference between those two, at least when I'm trying to make one off the right, off the top of my head, but you can see it, In the United States, the water is starting to boil. Those feelings, uh, strong on either side, are starting to boil upward, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act is the thing that is going to start to topple that forward. David Atchison is the one who helped uh, put in the literature or put in the wordage into the Kansas-Nebraska Act that would say, hey— Popular sovereignty is going to be the thing. When you are a part of this territory, you get to vote on what goes on with it. And Stephen Douglas, at first, was very anti this. Now, Stephen Douglas was not a man who was pro-slavery by any means. He's from Illinois. Um, by all means, he's fairly similar to Abraham Lincoln, really. When you look at the two of them, they really aren't all that different of candidates. Two pretty decent candidates for, you know, a presidency in the United States. The big thing, though, is... Of course, everything in the Senate has to be some sort of compromise. So when this happens, Atchison says, well, fuck that. You know, us slave states and all this stuff, we're not going to support your Kansas-Nebraska Act unless you say that there is popular sovereignty and the people that go there can decide whether they want slaves or not. Because if we don't put that in, then all these places are going to be, in his own words, overrun by free soilers. And all of a sudden, the advantage in the Senate is going to fall away from the slave states and start to pop in to be, you know, in the advantage of the free states and of course in so facto here come the dominoes eventually the 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 slavery institution itself would eventually end. So now we have the heads starting to butt. Eventually though, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is signed into law. And popular sovereignty begins. And as you can probably imagine, things went (laughs) very quickly and clearly to shit. This, of course, leads us to the border war, or as I like to call it, and as it is called historically, not like I made it up or anything, Bleeding Kansas. Now... As part of the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, part of the territories being organized would be the territories of what? That's right, Kansas. That would be the answer to that question. And what if, you are a, if you're a person who's uh, familiar with the geography of the United States, what, what state is right next to Kansas? I mean, right to its immediate east. What state is that? If you said Missouri, ding, 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 you are exactly correct. Missouri and Kansas are right next to each other, and we just talked about Missouri being a very fervent slave state. It was part of the Missouri Compromise because it, at that point, wanted to enter the Union as a slave state. So Missouri has been a slave state its entire time as a state and was so as a territory before that. Now that we have popular sovereignty in the Kansas-Nebraska Act, all of a sudden, you have a whole bunch of people living in Missouri— Slave, you know, pro-slavery people living in Missouri, wanting to now move over to Kansas, where they can use their influence and their slaves and what have you to push, you know, the 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 popular vote in the direction of making Kansas or making that territory or whatever a slave state. They want it to be, you know, pro-slavery just like they are, and of course, Kansas is well above the 3630 parallel line, and, uh, you know, in, in the old Missouri Compromise, Kansas would be a free state no matter what you do. It doesn't matter how many people live there that love slavery. It doesn't matter. You're going to be a free state because of that particular law. Well, now that that is over and that we have the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which has shoehorned in, shoehorned in popular sovereignty, now we have a whole bunch of people running at Kansas going, oh, shit. Here we go. And a humongous number of those people are people from the state of Missouri wanting to, you know, push their pro-slavery agenda in what at this point had been a mostly free state, you know, sympathizing Kansas territory. Of course, everybody's moving into this thing um, going insane. There were people. From all you know, both the the pro slavery side of Missouri, and there were also anti slavery groups going, "Hey, uh, our people move in too. let's just do this whole thing," and it became this, uh, you know, this sort of gold rush sort of thing that was happening in in Kansas. Now, since a lot of the pro slavery people were in Missouri, they tended to get to Kansas a little bit earlier, uh, and and really kind of before the um, the anti slavery people were there. So at first there was a lot of pro-slavery um, legislation working its way through in the territory of Kansas because of things like, you know, the the settling of pro-slavery towns like the town of Leavenworth and the town of Atchison, you know, named after David Atchison from Missouri. Um, Franklin Pierce appointed territorial officials. Uh, he was the president at the time in Kansas um, to help oversee the territories. And Franklin Pierce was a... I wouldn't call him exactly a pro-slavery president, but he wasn't an anti-slavery president. He was very much a, a unionist type that figured this whole anti-slavery um, mentality that people were starting to adopt was very dangerous, so he was pretty much a, a, a opponent of keeping the status quo and was okay that if slavery people wanted to do stuff in Kansas that they do stuff there. Uh, there were things, and people called... Border ruffians, an interesting little eighteen-fifty sort of colloquial term, or Southern Yankees as they are also known as, most of these people from Missouri that would go in and often by fraud and intimidation would influence elections um, uh, for pro-slavery purposes. In fact, in 1855, during uh, a congressional committee, uh, uh, um, investigation They found that one of these elections Had 1729 fraudulent votes That were cast Compared to only 1114 legal votes So more than 50% of the votes Were total and other bullshit They were fraud It was it was just this whole It, it was just a madhouse in Kansas Once people figured out Hey, the, the way we're going to figure out What this state does Is if we're here to vote on it And everybody was bringing out Literally bringing out the big guns. And this is when you start to see also those those uh, David Atchison, ah, his, his, his worst opponent, those free soilers, they come into Kansas as well and want to make the state a free state, a state free of slavery. Many of these citizens of northern states would arrive with assistance from uh, benevolent societies that were uh, abolitionists, such as the Boston-based New England Immigrant Aid Company which was found, founded shortly before passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act with the specific intention of transporting anti-slavery immigrants to the frontier. Everybody is sending all their people, all their people to Kansas to try to make it, you know, whatever they saw fit and, you know, whatever it was going to be. On March 30th of 1855, Kansas, the Kansas Territory held the election for its first territorial legislature this legislature would be the one to decide whether the territory would allow slavery. Just as had happened in the election last year, these border ruffians, here they come again, the ruffians from Missouri start to stream into the territory to vote and to do their own particular brand of intimidation. And pro-slavery delegates were elected to 37 out of the 39 seats. Only two men were elected um, as free soilers. Due to questions about this electoral fraud, the territorial governor at the time, Andrew Reeder, invalidated these results in five voting districts and another special election was held on May 22nd, a couple months later, to elect replacements. Eight of the 11 delegates of those places that he's uh, declared invalid elected were free staters, but this still left the pro-slavery camp with a 29 to 10 advantage at the time. Of course, all this news of, you know, Illegality and fraud and bullshit gets to the ears of those in Washington, and Congress sends a special committee to the Kansas Territory the next year in 1856. This committee reports, um, and their report was conclusive, that if the election of you know March 30th had been limited to actual settlers— it would have definitely elected a free state legislature. They were basically saying the only reason that Kansas ever elected a pro-slavery you know, legislature was because of all these border ruffians coming in and roughing it up and making it so that there was a disproportionate and fraudulent election in the first place. The report also stated that the le- legislature actually seated was in a legally constituted body, shots fired, and had no power to pass valid laws. Nevertheless, the pro-slavery pro-slavery, excuse me, legislature convened in the newly created uh, territorial capital of Pawnee on July 2nd of 1855. The legislature immediately then invalidated the results of the special election in May and seated all those pro-slavery delegates, anyhow, the ones elected in March. After only one week in Pawnee, the legislature moved. Uh, the territorial capital to the Shawnee Mission on the Missouri border in, you know, where is present-day Kansas City, uh, where it reconvened and began passing laws, of course, favorable to slaveholders. Later in August, anti-slavery residents met to formally reject those pro-slavery laws passed by, the, in their eyes and in Congress's eyes, the bogus legislature of Kansas. They quickly enacted their own free state delegates to separate legislature based now in Topeka, which stood in opposition to the pro-slavery government operating in Lecompton and drafted the first territorial constitution called the Topeka Constitution. In a message to Congress on the uh, 24th of January in 1856, the next year, President Pierce declared the free state Topeka government insurrectionists in its stand against pro-slavery territorial officials. Maybe one of the dumbest statements a president has ever made. You can draw your own parallels there. But Franklin Pierce straight up says the Topeka Constitution, the Topeka government, which is basically made up of all these free soil type people, the ones who want to make it a free state. He says that their government is total bullshit and that the government that Congress had already said is totally and utterly illegitimate of its own. The pro-slavery government is the correct one and that the Kansans have to follow now what that government was saying. So basically, there are two governments trying to run Kansas at this time, and you can only imagine that tensions are going to rise a little higher. This is when a certain man named John Brown arrives in Kansas. John Brown is like the man, he's like the Chuck Norris of this story. He is ready to lay down some fucking violence to make something happen. John Brown is an outspoken abolitionist who decides to come to Kansas to fight against this pro-slavery government. Um, On May 21st of 1856, the border ruffians, the Missourians, actually go ahead and invade Lawrence, Kansas, where the Free Staters were basically hanging out, and burn down the Free State Hotel, destroy two newspaper offices, and ransacked a great deal of homes and stores. They even took a cannon used during the Mexican-American War and started shooting cannonballs out of it at, you know, stuff in Lawrence, Kansas. Eventually, this cannon was returned to Leavenworth. In May of 1856, Republican Senator Charles Sumner, we talked about him earlier, of Massachusetts, took to the floor. This is what he talked about before. He took to the floor to denounce the threat of slavery in Kansas and humiliate its supporters, Charles Sumner was pissed. He was very anti-slavery. He was super angry about all the bullshit that was going on in Kansas. He had devoted his enormous energies to the destruction of what Republicans called the slave power. That would be the efforts of slave owners to take control of federal government and ensure the survival and even expansion of their pro-slavery ways. In the speech called The Crimes Against Kansas, Sumner ridiculed the honor of elderly South Carolina Senator Andrew Butler, portraying Butler's pro-slavery agenda towards Kansas with the raping of a virgin and characterized his affection uh, for it in sexual and revolting terms. If you would like more details, would you like to know more? If you would like more details about that, go ahead and go back and download my uh, The Caning of Charles Sumner episode. Um, you will get more details about that. Since that episode is called The Caning of Charles Sumner, you can sort of guess what happened next. The next day, Butler's cousin, the South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks, took a cane and beat the ever-loving shit out of Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate, trapping him underneath his desk and beating him within an inch of his life, giving him uh, permanent neurological damage and PTSD for the rest of his life. He did not kill him, although he very much tried to do so. This, uh, this action electrified the nation, brought violence to the floor of the Senate, and further deepened that north-south split. The violence then continued to increase. The violence is just getting worse. You can see how the, the water is starting to bubble. The boiling is starting, starting to happen, and it's going to come to a head very soon. Abolitionist John Brown led his sons and other followers to plan the murder of settlers who spoke in favor of slavery. At a pro-slavery settlement at Pottawatomie Creek on the night of May 21st, the group seized five pro-slavery men from their homes and hacked them to death with broadswords. If you've seen The Walking Dead, this is a, a scene between Rick and his group literally hacking to death another group of people that they don't agree with. That is exactly what happened here. John Brown and his men then escaped and began plotting a full-scale slave insurrection to take place at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, with financial support from Boston abolitionists. This dude was not, absolutely not fucking around at all. He didn't even give a shit about voting. He was, he was all about coming together, getting people on the ground, and, and hacking them to death with broadswords. Broadswords! Not even like fucking machetes or something, broad swords. Like this dude's coming out of like fifteenth century Europe all of a sudden. He he time travels to a nineteenth century United States and decides broadswords are his uh his weapon of choice. In August of eighteen fifty-six, a little later on, thousands of pro-slavery men formed into armies and marched into Kansas. And in that same month, John Brown and several of his followers engaged. 400 pro-slavery soldiers in the Battle of Awastomi. The hostilities raged for another couple of months until Brown eventually did depart the Kansas Territory, and new territorial governor John Geary took office and managed to prevail upon both sides. Finally, after all this time of people killing each other because of a little thing called slavery, he finally managed to uh, sue both sides for peace. This was followed by a fragile peace that was broken by intermittent violent outbreaks for a couple more years. Obviously, these things don't just end like that. They tend to simmer out and sort of fizzle. The last major outbreak of violence was touched off by the um, the, the Maurice de Cygnus, if I'm saying that right, Massacre of, of 1858 in which border ruffians, there they are again, filled, killed five priests. St- Jesus Christ. Border ruffians killed five free state men. There's a lot of F's in there, a lot of alliteration in all. Approximately 56 people died in the bleeding Kansas by the time the violence had ended in 1859. And of course, even after all this time, Kansas was not a state yet. And you know why Kansas isn't a state yet? Because the writing at this point was on the wall. It is 1858. It is 1859 what happens in 1860 and 1861 just a couple years later if you said the civil war you would be correct again and because we are just basically right at the 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 precipice of a full blown you know secession and war among the states you can imagine that now that the uh, border ruffians and the pro slavery people have been driven out of Kansas finally that this new, you know, free state Kansas that was going to try to get itself in the Union was being blocked in the Senate at this point by those um, who were the the senators and congresspeople of slave states. They did not want Kansas nor Nebraska north of there to enter the Union as free states. Kansas would not enter uh, the Union as a free state until 1861, 1861 which is, you know, when the Civil War actually formally starts after, you know, the, um, the, the bombing of Fort Sumner down in South Carolina. And at this point, there were additional, you know, bouts of guerrilla violence erupting on the border between Kansas and Missouri um, called bushwhacking, and, you know, the, the term jayhawker at this point, jayhawkers being the people who are free, soiler uh, types who are, who are anti-slavery, comes into the lexicon, and that is why Kansas, the University of Kansas, their mascot is the Jayhawk because of this particular little part of history. And guys, that is that is all I really got to say about Bleeding Kansas. Not a very long episode. It's just another little portion of United States history that I think a lot of people don't really even think of. Um When it comes down to it, Bleeding Kansas was basically the real beginning of the Civil War, not, you know, the, the actual beginning of, you know, secession and this and that, but the fighting between pro and anti-slavery forces in Kansas and Missouri was pretty much the precursor to the Civil War. And I thought you all just would enjoy another lesson on civics. Guys, you can find this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. Search Knowledge from the Couch podcast on Google. Literally go to google.com, put that in there. You will find everything that you need to find in terms of this podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Couch Pod you can go contribute a little money to me patreon.com Kyle has a podcast please give me some money so I can continue to make this show even though I will anyway uh, it's not a really great advertisement for my patreon but please if you if you do enjoy the show and its content please just you know even throw me a buck a month that would be uh, extremely appreciated guys I don't know what next week's episode is gonna be about but I think it's gonna be about a little bit of civic responsibility get ready for that guys. Knowledge from the Couch podcast, episode 47. This has been Bleeding Kansas. I have been Kyle, your host, and I hope you all live long and continue to prosper.